A Bristol helicopter is doing a routine flight in the North Sea when something unthinkable happens in the storm. What caused this flight to ditch in the sea? Welcome back to the Heartlanders Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. I almost didn't say that right. (laughs) (laughs) I almost stumbled over that. You could hear it. Hello to our new patrons, Bob. Hey, Bob. And Avalia. And Avalia. If we didn't already say hi to you, I don't think we have them. Hello, Avalia. Thanks for the comments, Bob. I know you've been leaving a lot of them. I've seen them. Oh, we have to read. Hold on. Oh, yeah. We have an email from him. We have to read you guys this short play. It's Made for us. Fantastic. Should we do it in our own voices? Well, like... we're missing someone for uh, that. Are we? Yeah, but I mean, we can just pretend to be Brendan. This freaking made my day. For the it record, did. thank you I so much. Laughed hysterically. It was pretty great. So Bob says, "Hi guys, it's Bob here, the Irish guy who wrote in like yonks ago to thrill you with tales of snoozing wartime prime ministers and Irish coffees." Anywho, I've been meaning to write in with another listener story, but you know, life has a habit of getting in the way when you're busy making plans. I even listen to some other podcasts. I know, I feel dirty just thinking about it. Several of you have said things about this. We really don't mind. No. Please go listen to other podcasts. We don't mind. It's not competition. As long as we're your favorite. Hey. I'm just kidding. But, But I hope we are. So, anyway, he says, I'm back. And I even signed up to be a patron, just to get Brendan off my case. Thanks. So I do have a story, but before I get into that, I wrote a short radio play based on the Hard Landings podcast. Act 1. Scene 1. Nick and Christy's apartment, which we don't live in anymore, by the way. Yes, but that's okay. (laughs) Enter Nick, Christy, and Miranda. Me. Welcome back to the Hard Landings podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. Me. I'm Christy. Me. And I'm Miranda. Fanfare. Alarms. Enter Brendan. (laughs) Brendan, (laughs) sign up for Patreon, ya bums. Exit, Brendan. (laughs) Me. Tonight, we're back to talk about flight. Me. Just tell me what the bleep happened. (laughs) We'll get get to to that. that. (laughs) Calamities. Alarms. Enter, Brendan. Brendan. Sign up for Patreon, you useless sacks of meat. (laughs) All of us. Keep Keep your your speed up. Exit. Finn. Finn. Oh my god, I laughed so hard when I read this the first Thank you for portraying time. us exactly. <laughs> it was, I was like cackling laughing. Like it was really funny. Brendan also appreciates it for the record. Summed us up well. So, thank you, Bob. Thank you. And thanks for being a patron. And thanks for all your comments. They've been great. Uh, any other housekeeping? Uh, new stuff on the merch site. Did we determine what September is? Are we going with the oh, suggestion? So, yeah, we're going to go with Megan, one of our patrons, suggested that for September we do Remembrance of 9-11 Stories, which means... No conspiracy theories allowed here. Yes. It means where were you, where do you remember being on 9-11? Or, if not 9-11, some other major incident or thing happening in history, where were you then? Tell us that story. For example, the Challenger. That is an option. Where were you then? Where were you? It can also be good things. I mean, where were you when, I don't know. The first space shuttle landed, like, re-landed on Earth without crashing. I'm pretty sure that was the, uh, don't quote me on this, the Columbia. I'm not sure. But 
Where were you? Because it landed in California. Where were you? Various other things. I'm sure you guys will think of it, but it's Whatever either it you can do 9-11 or you can do another big event, aviation-based, preferably, event in history. Yes. You will learn why I associate 9-11 with Fruit Loops. That's weird. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. I was probably eating breakfast at the time, too. So Another note, because we talked about it on our... Post episode last week, and I said I wanted to bring it up on the actual episode this week, but on October 2nd, if you happen to have that time, which is a Saturday, and tickets are cheap enough for you, uh, I find yourself in Las Vegas, because we will be there. We're going to be wandering about the Las Vegas Strip, as well as going to the... Um, Zach Bagans Haunted Museum! That, and I might try to find myself at the airplane shop at some point. The airplane shop? That is what it is called. It is... Uh, the Gemini Jets. Yeah, it, it's the shop next to where Gemini Jets produces their everything. Which is obviously more related to the podcast, but not what I'm most excited about. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, yeah, we'll be in <laughs> Vegas for the day. So if you're there, we're on the ground for like 14 hours from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. We'll do a bunch of social media posts, etc. So if you're going to be there and you want to meet up, just like message us or whatever. But here's your PSA. Go look up tickets and see if you can be there, whatever, or just come visit, or just, cool. Yeah, whatever. For reference, we got these tickets super cheap. We did, and they actually got even cheaper. Via Frontier Airlines. Yes, we got ours for $40 round trip. And, and then we added two friends. And theirs were $30 round trip. Anyways, so yeah, we're doing that, and be there. Uh, yeah. I think that's all our housekeeping. So, what are we covering today, Nicholas? Today, we are covering a very unique one for us. We are covering, are you ready for this? Bristol Helicopters Flight 56 Charlie. 56C. Yep. Thank you to our patron, Chris, for recommending this incident. Yeah. This was an interesting one. There's a lot to this. And it's going to be a little bit of a long episode. We've covered helicopters, or let me rephrase, I have covered a helicopter before. Yes. With we... a Sikorsky helicopter that had a rotor problem uh, for a Miranda So if you want to listen to that, you have to be a patron, $10 patron. It was a really good episode. Yeah. We have another helicopter in our future. It is a famous helicopter crash of recently. I'm sure you can guess. That will be the anniversary, so we don't recommend it. It's on our schedule. Thank you. <laughs> So, warning now, there may be some whining in the background because the dog's behind the gate. At least for now. So, helicopters. We really haven't covered helicopters much, and we won't cover them much, but this one was definitely really interesting. It has a lot to it, and it's definitely going to be quite the episode to cover. So, I'm glad we did. Oh, boy. Here we go. So, this occurred on January 19th of 1995. Middle of winter. This was a Eurocopter, or at the time, an aerospatial AS-332 Lima Super Puma is a big helicopter, by the way. It's quite sizable. With the tail number Golf Dash Tango India Golf Kilo. You stumbled over I that I know, one. I did. <laughs> Golf Tango India Golf Kilo. So this is obviously a British accident and a very sizable helicopter, but we'll talk more about this. This is a... Owned and operated by a helicopter company that primarily moves people to and from oil rigs. And they still exist today. I they very much do. And yeah. that is still what they do. They are just a helicopter charter operation to take oil drillers to and from their oil platforms. Yep. They're drilling rigs in the middle of the North Sea. Yep. 
they're based in Aberdeen in Scotland. They operate from Aberdeen to the Bray oil fields. In this case, the Bray Alpha oil rig. So they're named, as in multiple oil rigs owned by the same company. They'll be Alpha, Beta, Charlie, those kinds of things. So this is the Alpha oil rig for the Bray Company. And there's a bunch of these oil fields all through the North Sea. They were discovered in the 1960s, and they were kind of split between the UK and Norway, and then they get sold to these oil companies for drilling. Yep. And so there's these large oil rigs all throughout, and these helicopters operate to all of them. The captain for today's flight is Cedric Roberts. He was 44 years old at the time. He had 9,610 hours total, of which 4,695 hours were on the helicopter type. So he was quite experienced and quite a bit of time on this helicopter. It's uh, quite the feat. And he'd also been with the company for 21 years at the time, which is pretty good. The first officer was Lionel Soule. He was 39 years old at the time. He had 3,158 hours total, of which 2,593 hours were on the type, so the majority of his time was on the type. He had been with the company for five years. So both of them, I mean, you you think about it, they're pretty long-term pilots for this company. So they're well aware of what they do. They're very comfortable with their situation and uh, flying these helicopters. It is their passion at this point, I would say. This was chartered to carry 16 maintenance engineers to the oil rig. The flight was to include a stop at the East Bray platform to pick up two more engineers before carrying on to the Alpha rig. The crew arrived for duty at 8.30 in the morning. That morning, they performed a round trip to the 40s oil field without issues. The weather then called for scattered to broken cloud cover between 2,000 and 6,000 feet with isolated towering cumulus and cumulonimbus which could contain occasional rain, hail, sleet, snow, or thunderstorms. Man, just a barrage of anything and everything, basically. That could go wrong, could go wrong. (laughs) Yeah, they've got just basically weather conditions to say, who knows what's going to happen. But they were avoidable. Yeah, they were avoidable, and this is also extremely common in the North Sea, especially during the winter, because, you know, that's just how things go. But So this is the area where the warm winds and water of the Atlantic meet the frigidity of the Arctic. So it's prime space for storms. 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 Flight 56 Charlie was scheduled to depart at 12.30 p.m. But after a short delay, they departed at 12.38 p.m. The first officer was to be the pilot flying, and the captain was to be the pilot monitoring for this flight. As you can tell, there's a lot of things very similar to airline flights that we talk about, standard 121 operations. This is not a 121 operation, but they operate a lot like one. Because they understand that their job requires such a strict and high level of safety. The helicopter powered out of Aberdeen, leaving the Aberdeen VOR on the 062 radio. We've talked about these before, the VORs and radials and such. But basically, you have a VOR and then there's 360 degrees around it. They're going at, a, at if you were to consider it like a clock, with the VOR at the center, they're going at an angle of 062 degrees from dead north of that VOR, away from it. So that's their radial that they will follow, away from the Aberdeen VOR, as the main part of their track. The helicopter eventually climbed to and maintained 7,000 feet cruising for a good part of its flight. The crew chose this altitude, hoping to be out of the icing layers. Once there, they could see some larger clouds building on and around their planned route. The crew observed their weather radar and did not see anything 
of that much significance ahead of them, so they opted to descend to 3,000 feet for the warmer air. At 1.17 p.m., the flight left the Aberdeen radar coverage area at a range of 80 nautical miles from the originating airport. So what this actually means is kind of interesting, because basically they fly at a low enough altitude that as they fly over the curvature of the Earth, those radars, the radar range can only see in a straight line and upward. So as they fly at a low altitude and follow the curvature of the Earth, they actually go underneath the flat radar. So at that 80 nautical miles from the Aberdeen Airport from the Aberdeen VOR as well, they could not be seen by radar any longer. The Earth is not flat. The Earth is not flat. If you believe the Earth is flat, you don't belong here. And you're not a pilot. You can also leave this or podcast, believing Thanks. airplanes. <laughs> the crew then changed radio frequencies to the Aberdeen Flight Information System frequency. Meanwhile, the crew queued up the frequency for the Bray Traffic Watch on their second radio. So the oil fields actually have their own frequency... That allows them to communicate, basically tell them that they're inbound, things like that. But the Bray Traffic Watch doesn't have any radar capabilities, so they can't see the helicopter coming or anything. They just have to rely on them, basically giving them positions and such. So at this point, the helicopter's really not on anybody's radar. They're not being tracked by anybody in particular in any sort of sophisticated way. The flight flew into the clouds, where it encountered heavy rain and some hail. So sure enough, they're starting to encounter some weather. The crew discussed as they received a warning about ice, but they did not notice any performance changes to the helicopter, so they figured that an ice pellet may have become stuck in the ice detector on the side of the helicopter. They continued as normal, but tried to climb to 5,000 feet to try to get above the weather. At 1.33 p.m., the crew told Aberdeen that they were at the gate, reporting point, which is 120 nautical miles on the 062 radial from the Aberdeen VOR at which time they changed their primary frequency to the Bray traffic watch. So what the gate is is actually a standard point that the helicopters will fly to, and then from there they have very specific paths to all of the rigs. rigs. So the gate is literally the point they, that all the helicopters must fly to first in order to get to the rigs. From there they web out to all the different rigs. So they made it to the gate, the important point. At 1.36 p.m., the flight was on its normal descent and was still crossing through some clouds at 3,000 feet when there was an enormous bang associated with an explosive flash, at which point the helicopter began vibrating violently. The helicopter was still seemingly under control, so they continued, but the first officer initiated an auto-rotative descent, which we don't talk too, too much about, but it's actually a... a a safety maneuver that's learned by all helicopter pilots that will allow them to, to descend very quickly, but in a controlled manner. And they transmitted a radio call to the Bray watch, traffic watch, stating that they were struck by lightning and had a severe bi- vibration and that they may need to ditch into the sea. The flight crew then made an announcement to the passengers, but it was never heard. The Bray traffic watch acknowledged this and, and informed other aircraft and ships in the area that there was a helicopter in distress. As the helicopter descended through 1,500 feet, the flight crew found that even with the severe vibration, the flight controls appeared to be working normally. So they decided to level off and attempt to make it to the Bray Alpha platform, which was, in fact, the nearest landing point at the time. Which, remember, wasn't actually where they were supposed to go first. It just so happened that that was where they were nearest to. They were supposed to continue actually past the Bray Alpha platform, go pick up two more maintenance engineers, and bring them all back to Bray Alpha. 
but Brayelfa was the nearest at the time of this incident, so they were only seven nautical miles away, and they were aiming to just make it there. Another flight crew that were operating Flight 56 Bravo, the different helicopter, were at the Bray Bravo platform, different oil rig. They were loading passengers at the time when they heard the distress call. They quickly unloaded their passengers and took off at 1.39 p.m. in the hopes of being able to locate and assist the crippled helicopter over to safety. Essentially becoming a rescue mission. Yep. The first officer of 56 Charlie, our, our, our helicopter in distress, distress, however, was still maintaining the helicopter in stable flight, but he wasn't sure if the directional yaw control, that uh, left and right control, not roll, literally directional control, was being maintained properly, and if that was due to the tail rotor, or purely because of the wind vane effect, which actually they call it something completely different, they call it the weathercock. Most weather vanes are shaped like a rooster. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> but basically, we call it the wind vane effect. So this is actually common with most airplanes. If you're moving in a certain direction and the wind is going in a certain direction, what does the airplane want to do? It wants to maintain the aerodynamic direction, which actually is a, why we tie down airplanes. It isn't necessarily because we expect somebody's going to steal it. It isn't because we expect that the airplane's going to roll away somewhere. It's actually because we worry that the wind will actually twist the airplane because the airplane's always going to want a wind vane and turn into the wind. That is how they're designed. And so it's actually funny because we used to get really high winds at the airport that I work at and all the airplanes would be on tie down. And if we'd have a really high wind day, you come back the next day and all the airplanes, even though they're all on tie down, they're all turned like 10 degrees one direction <laughs> because they're all, they all turned in toward the wind. So it's the same thing. He, they were wondering if the, helicopter was maintaining a certain level of yaw control because of the tail rotor, which is supposed to do that, or if they were just being maintained by the wind vane effect because they were moving forward at a high enough speed. The first officer lightly pushed on the yaw pedals, and the helicopter appeared to perform normally. He told the, co the captain that all seemed normal, but at that exact moment, a loud crack was heard, followed by an enormous lurch to the left. The helicopter then rolled right and pitched down steeply before beginning a constant spin. Needless to say, that's horrifying. They're only at 1,500 feet at this point. At this time, the crew knew that they were going to have to ditch the helicopter into the sea. So the first officer made another mayday call to the Bray traffic watch, informing them that the tail rotor was damaged and that they were, in fact, going to ditch into the sea. The mayday call was relayed from the other helicopter, 56 Bravo, to Aberdeen at 1.41 p.m. 56 Bravo was already en route to the assumed position of 56 Charlie. The flight crew then carried out the tail rotor drive failure checklist. This checklist is no laughing matter. This checklist includes shutting down the engines completely to stop the yaw spin. So they had to shut down the main rotor. This also included arming and inflating the equipped external emergency floats on the helicopter which requires perfect timing in order to pre prevent the helicopter from pitching too far one direction or another. Yeah, and tipping due over. Due to instability. Yeah. But also allow them enough time to inflate before impacting the water. Right. So this is a tricky maneuver to do. And this helicopter is actually equipped with very, very large floats, uh, emergency floats, to help it make these emergency landings. The passengers realized what was happening and began preparing themselves for the ditching. 
The passengers all had to go through a rigorous training for dealing with emergencies in the water, whether it be escaping a downed helicopter or a disaster in an oil rig. This was a requirement to fly on these helicopters. Before each flight, the passengers would put on a Gore-Tex suit to keep themselves dry in the event of an emergency landing in the water. They also watched a safety video before each flight that detailed how to brace and prepare themselves for a ditching. So they were all very well prepared. They did this every single time, and most of them had done this so many times over that they were all super familiar with how to do this. And this was all to training. They put their hoods up, tightened their seatbelts, and braced as trained. The flight crew attempted to transmit another announcement to the passengers over the PA system at that time, but the passengers didn't hear that one either. It was transmitted over the radio to the Bray traffic watch, however. <laughs> so they heard this <laughs> this call. Uh, oops. <laughs> yeah, oops. The timing on the floats had actually worked out perfectly. The first officer put the nose of the helicopter up and turned the nose into the 30-knot southerly wind. Quite the wind. That is a heck of a wind. Yep. The helicopter touched down gently into the waves, which were approximately 6 to 7 meters in height. That is no small wave. That's like 21 feet high. Yeah, there are no small waves. Not at all. Big waves. Big waves. The captain applied the rotor brake, and both pilots activated the emergency release of the doors. These are on either side of the helicopter. At 1.42 p.m., the captain made one last call over the radio to announce that they had ditched safely and were evacuating, but he did not mention their position. Neither had he mentioned their position at any time over the radio. Neither of them did. So there was no exact idea of where their position was, just rough idea. Which is not great for recovery efforts. Not at all. They're like, we're in the ocean. Pretty much. <laughs> we're in the North Sea. Somewhere. Does that help? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, I see water. Yeah. <laughs> so these trained passengers pushed the doors away from the helicopter, pulled the life rafts out from underneath the seats, attached them to the helicopter, and then threw them into the water and activated the inflation. These are some well-trained passengers. If only they could have this on every flight we ever talk about, Which man. you could if you would just read the damn safety card. Right. All right. The captain completed the shutdown procedure in the cockpit while the first officer went aft to assist the passengers. One of the life rafts on the left side was picked up by the wind and thrown against the doorway on the side of the helicopter. So that's useless. Basically made that useless. Yep. The passengers and crew were unable to push that away from the door, so they could not use that. The first officer made the executive decisions, and all the passengers and crew made their way onto the other life raft instead on the opposite side of the helicopter. The raft was only made for 14 people, however, and they put 18 people in it. (laughs) That's a heavy raft. It's a pretty hefty raft. As they were getting in, the water in the raft was at ankle deep. Yep. It's like, I need to sit in your lap, okay? Okay. There's the rafts. Yeah, they're supposed to have covers, too, and they tried to put the cover up over the top of them, but they couldn't. The winds were just fighting them too much to do it. That'd be really cool, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> to have like a little tent, you know, yes. so water doesn't get Well, in. and they probably really wanted it because it was sitting low in these really high waves, so they were getting water thrown all over them as well. All the while, it was still raining heavily on them Yeah, as they float in the sea, so they were just getting drenched. They were wearing those... Uh, those nifty suits. Nifty Gore-Tex suits, but those nifty Gore-Tex suits, which are supposed to keep all of the water off of their clothing underneath and everything... Uh, not so much. Mm. Too much water. There is a limit. Yeah, but even then, they're supposed to be able to like be in the water. Well, yeah. But it didn't work. 
This did keep all of the crew and passengers together, however, since they were all in one raft, which would make it easier for the rescuers to find them when looking for them instead of two rafts. As they floated beside the helicopter, one of the doors, which was supposed to sink, but hadn't, was instead floating beside them. And it was blown against the raft by the waves, and a sharp edge managed to puncture the raft. It's a really bad day. Oh no. Which caused the raft to take on a little bit more water. Some of the passengers began bailing some of the water out, but the captain insisted that the raft would not sink due to the double walls. He insisted to everyone that everything would be okay, and he tried his best to keep everybody safe and calm. The helicopter began sinking into the swells a little bit as well. This brought the blades down closer and closer to the raft, which was potentially dangerous. The captain reluctantly decided that using a passenger's knife, it was time to cut the short rope that held the raft up against the helicopter, assuming that the longer rope, which was also attached to the helicopter, would keep the raft near enough to the helicopter but, e- but to be easily spotted, but at a safe enough distance to avoid injury or damage to the raft due to the blades. The long rope had been damaged to the point of being cut somehow, and they were forced to cut the short rope and drift away from the helicopter, where it could be more difficult for them to be spotted for rescue, since they weren't just directly with the helicopter anymore. Meanwhile, 56 Bravo had relayed to Aberdeen the final message that 56 Charlie had transmitted while searching the sea near the presumed area that 56 Charlie went down. The people in the raft began hearing the sounds of 56 Bravo approaching a short while later. It began getting close enough for the people to see, so they retrieved one of the signal flares and lit it to try to attract the attention of the flight crew on 56 Bravo. It seemingly didn't work, however, as the helicopter passed by and began flying away from them. A moment later, though, the first officer on 56 Bravo noticed something floating and called it out to the captain. They turned and headed back toward the raft, where they agreed and confirmed that it was, in fact, the raft containing the people that they were looking for. They confirmed this at 2.06 p.m. So it hadn't really been that long in reality. But it must have felt like forever. Probably. I mean, this was like 25 minutes, basically, since they hit the water. when you're stranded in the water, can probably feel like days. Yeah, I'm sure it felt like forever. The captain of 56 Bravo relayed this information over the radio and assumed the role of, quote, on-scene commander, or OSC. For the search and rescue operations, as he was now basically the beacon, the, the site where the incident had happened. Oh yeah, they didn't bring their emergency locator, their beacon with them, <laughs> which is a whole other reason they couldn't be found that easily. Not that 56 Bravo had the equipment to be tracking them, but in the event that 56 Bravo didn't find them, that was their next hope. Basically. And they forgot it. They forgot it in the helicopter. It's not, like, attached into the helicopter? It is attached into the helicopter, but they were now drifting away from it. So they were and supposed, they were supposed oh, they to take to, it off the helicopter. They were supposed to bring it with them into the raft so that it would find them and not the helicopter. Oh. Well, <laughs> you know, you gotta use your big wrinkle brain, and uh, clearly yeah. they used their smooth brain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, all this went pretty well so far, other than that. I mean, no one's died yet. Or at all. Yeah. 56 Bravo descended and hovered low over the raft in order for the captain to count the number of people in the raft before ascending again, but remaining over the raft as sort of a beacon for the approaching rescue vehicles. Seven various helicopters from the Royal Air Force, the Coast Guard, and Norway, three with winches, and a Royal Air Force Nimrod, which is a sizable airplane, by the way. It's quite the interesting bird 
were all dispatched to assist. In the area was also a rescue boat, the Grampian Freedom, that is on a constant patrol for assisting with any emergencies on any of the oil rigs in the North Sea. So literally this boat's entire job is just to save people, basically, in the area of the oil rigs. Anytime there's an emergency on an oil rig or around an oil rig or anything like that, they respond. They are basically the first responders. This qualifies. Yep, this qualifies, as turns it turns out. out. Yeah. <laughs> this boat, the Grampian Freedom, was the first rescue vehicle to arrive on the scene at about 2.40 p.m. They got within a mile of the raft before sending a much faster small rescue boat, which is known as a fast rescue craft, or an FRC. FRC, yes, an FRC, with a crew to assess any injuries and to retrieve the raft. So this is literally just like a little powered dinghy <laughs> moving very quickly across the sea. Yeah, basically. That's what it is. They towed the raft to the rescue ship where a net was thrown over the side wall of the ship and the passengers were helped by the experienced rescue crew to grab and climb the net a few meters up to the deck of the ship. Yeah, they were basically safety. just told to launch themselves onto the net and climb the rest of the way. <laughs> yeah, so the, themselves onto the net. Yeah, so the way this would go, the rafts would be forced to wait for a swell to raise them up to the net before they would then be assisted, but the passengers would hurl themselves onto this net and climb up, and as they start doing so, this raft would already be far away, because it would go back down with the swell and away from the ship. And they would just do this in patterns, one at a time, send somebody up. This sounds awful. Hey, it's probably better when than... When you're in an emergency, <laughs> though? Yeah. It's probably better than just being out in the middle of nowhere alone. Also, yeah. what the Mayday episode doesn't at all mention is that most of the people aboard this little raft were completely seasick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> much sucks. is true, too. Yep. 40 foot waves? I'd be seasick, too. 20 to 40 foot. Yep. It's a really bad roller coaster ride. Yeah. That being said, all 18 passengers and crew survived and were uninjured, but were safely aboard the rescue ships where they could dry off and get warm. The other rescue vehicles began to arrive on the scene. The Nimrod had assumed the role of on scene commander once it arrived at 3 30 p.m., relieving 56 Bravo of that role and allowing them to return to a landing site. Once the other rescue helicopters arrived, the passengers and crew were offered a ride back to Aberdeen. On a helicopter. Either by helicopter or by staying aboard the Grampian Freedom and putting up with the rough sea swells and all that back to Aberdeen. The storm they were just in? Yep. They were going to have to deal with that. Fifteen of the 18 people agreed to be winched up by to the helicopters and quickly whisked back to Aberdeen, while three refused to fly in a helicopter again out of trauma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they stayed. I could see that. Yep. And they stayed behind on the Grampian Freedom to be carried back to Aberdeen, which didn't arrive until the following morning. So it took them significantly longer to get back because they had to go through massive waves. Meanwhile, earlier, at 2.55 p.m., shortly after everyone was rescued, another ship, the Highland Pride, had arrived and retrieved one of the rescue rafts. Then they began to attempt to salvage the helicopter, which they brought alongside the ship at 5.09 p.m. So here's one of the parts that might make you mad. I'm going to read that again, because this is interesting. Meanwhile, earlier at 2.55 p.m., shortly after everyone was rescued, another ship, the Highland Pride, had arrived and retrieved one of the rescue rafts. Then they began to attempt to salvage the helicopter, which they brought alongside the ship at 5.09 p.m. While the helicopter was secured alongside the ship, the flotation bags were punctured by the ship, and the most crucial piece of the investigation evidence, the entire helicopter 
sank at 7.03 p.m. after being released from the ship. Before the helicopter sank, four of the rotor blades were cut off so they didn't damage the ship. And they lost all but one. One was recovered. Which I will get to later. <laughs> yes. Everyone survived this accident, however, which is pretty amazing. They so, really did actually a very, very, very good job with this emergency landing. I realize no one can see my face, but they only recovered the one rotor blade. <laughs> well, oh, that's it. No, 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 no. no, no. Oh. no they no. recovered nothing at this point. Oh. The point being is they only had nothing. <laughs> it, it all sank to the bottom of the sea. They had one job. Yeah. Yeah, they tried to salvage the helicopter and subsequently made it sink. I'm not sure if the footage in the Mayday episode is actual footage, but I think it is. basically they ripped off the entire main rotor because they tried to hoist it by the main rotor. And it sank. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Who in their right mind would be like, this is a good idea. Oh, look, it fell off. What? <laughs> Excuse me. They, so... they were able to capture some photos and videos before it sank. We have a picture of which on our website. That's all I have. <laughs> this investigation was performed by the AAIB. The actual AAIB, not the AIB yeah. from before. Who began investigating the day of the accident. And yes, they did submit this with their normal little um, message. I will not give you a Hamilton reference today. And they had to start with recovering the wreckage from the bottom of the North Sea. Because some people... Some, if they'd just done their job right, <laughs> <laughs> they would have it without having to do it. It was found by the semi-submersible marine salvage vessel Stative, I think, two days after the accident, and it was found inverted, but was intact. So it was upside down on the bottom For the of the most sea. part. Only one main rotor blade was present and was separated, but was right next to where it was separated. So it probably separated when it impacted the ocean, the seafloor. The other main rotor blades still had roots attached, but as we mentioned, the blades were um, cut off. Gone. Yeah, they were gone. They lost them all. They're now, still in the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Now for some conventional identification. On this particular aircraft, the rotor blades are identified with colors, not numbers. Mm -hmm. So for reference, the black main rotor blade was the one that was recovered, and blades blue, yellow, and red were not, though each had about two meters still attached. Also recovered was the combined voice and flight data recorder, or CVFDR. So oh, they actually okay. had... A CVR, basically. yeah. And an FDR. Spoiler alert. It stopped working when the lightning struck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was not with the rest of the wreckage, more notably, was the tail rotor and gearbox. However, after three days of scouring the seabed with a submersible, the gearbox and all five rotor blades from the tail were found at right about where the helicopter ditched. Which is pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. Once the wreckage was on board the salvage vessel, investigators were immediately able to identify evidence of lightning strikes on two of the main rotor blades and one tail rotor blade, which will be called the white blade from now on. It's the top one, as it says in the caption. Yep. Here it is again. All the wreckage was brought to AAIB's facility in Farnborough. With time, more wreckage was found. One of the main rotor blades, the blade named Red, was found on a beach in Norway. Wow. Uh, That's pretty cool. Bye-bye, <laughs> like, I'm going to Norway. <laughs> and both cabin doors washed up in Scotland. All were taken to the AAIB as well. 
More detailed examination showed that the tail rotor gearbox had separated when its two lower attachment lugs and the bolt at the upper attachment all failed. Once that happened, the tail rotor blades impacted the pylon that was holding the tail rotor, which was evidenced by the deep gashes in said pylon. Uh, yeah. Four of the five tail blades had broken at 40% span, and the missing sections were never recovered. They broke in flight? Yes. yes. All oh, this happened in flight. Oh, no. <laughs> After being struck by lightning. Oh, no. Yeah. The last one remained damaged, but whole. Other than the white blade with the lightning marks, the remaining tail rotor blades all showed the damage to be from striking the pylon after the gearbox separated. The survivors had actually seen the whole assembly hanging by two of the four stainless steel hydraulic lines, which ultimately did sever and led to the tail rotor being separate from the rest of the wreckage. So when they had gotten onto the raft, they just saw the tail rotor hanging from pipes. Pretty good sign of what happened. Oh, that sucks. That's horrifying. Yes. As for the main rotor, the remains of the blue blade showed evidence of lightning damage and had lost its brass conducting strip and root rotor head bonding strap. The other three blades all had the conducting strip and bonding straps. Now that may be a bit confusing, so let me explain what these blades are made of. The tail rotor blades have an outer skin of fiberglass, under which is two layers of carbon fiber and then more, thicker fiberglass before the foam core. The ribs of the blades are all composite, too. They are attached with two bolts each to the rotor, and their leading edges are covered with a titanium anti-erosion shield. The main rotor blades had skins of carbon fiber composite and had stainless steel anti-erosion shields. All blades, main and tail, had the anti-erosion shields connected to a brass strip connected to a braided copper and stainless steel strap, which was insulated, all of which was designed as lightning protection, lol, to then direct the lightning to the ground as it does on airplanes. So the helicopter, in theory, is supposed to be lightning-proof. It's supposed to be a Faraday cage, just like a normal airplane. So what went wrong? I'll get into it. The following is a description of the lightning damage found on the rotor blades, and I'm going to try to show these in cohesion. I don't know if it's going to work. This is all verbatim. The blue main rotor blade, which had suffered complete loss of the brass strip linking the stainless steel leading edge anti-corrosion shield to the braided earth cable, with attendant evidence of thermal damage and fissuring to the composite material below the strip and failure of the braided earthing connection which crosses the flapping hinge. The bolt attaching the braiding to the blade hinge assembly inboard of the flapping hinge had been overstressed. The black main rotor blade, which had evidence of arcing between all adjacent composites of the leading edge anti-erosion shield with overheating of the adjacent composite areas. This shows all of the recovered sections. So you can see that this is blue, yellow, red, black. You can see the stripes on them, except for the blue one. Right. Okay. So all the same colors exist for the tail, but the tail has five rotor blades. So it has the white one. This is the main, so it only has four. Right, got you. And then the last photo that I have, which for reference are photos 10 and 11, as well as 4A and B. The white tail rotor blade section had suffered marked delamination of its composite skins and associated thermal damage of its root areas, together with loss of its anti-erosion shield, brass conducting strip, and failure of the braided bonding strap and its attachment lug to the blade bolt. Any questions? No. Negative. Great. 
So what does all of that mean in terms of how the helicopter failed? Well, once the white tail rotor blade had the strip missing, the anti-erosion strip, the whole tail rotor became imbalanced, causing the vibration that the crew experienced. Investigators looked at the bolts that attached the gearbox to the pylon, specifically the upper bolt. Once they cut away the area around the threaded end of the bolt that was still stuck inside the pylon, they found that only two full threads were actually holding the bolt in place when it fractured, rather than the required six threads. Which is not great at all. That being said, it was not a maintenance error. They looked at the fracture face, which we have a picture of on our website, and they found two different mechanisms of failure. One was an annular propagation of fatigue, which just means it formed a ring of failure, which in the picture is shown as a bright colored ring. The white on the inside? Yeah. This had to have happened while the bolt was rotating. So it said it only had two out of the six required threads attached. That's because the vibration was making it rotate. So this bolt was already just coming out on its own. Yeah. The second method of failure was a bending failure, specifically bending... Fatigue. Welcome back to the fatigue podcast. (laughs) However, this is a different kind of fatigue. Yes. So through the rest of the face of the fracture, investigators saw the striations that are indicative of failure, which kind of resemble tree rings, except that they're lines instead of rings. And the lines show that only a very small area of the bolt actually failed in overload. So it held all the way till like here and then (laughs) broke. That was what was left holding that bolt in place, was just that bottom little quarter. The metallurgy team determined that the annular damage was medium to high stress, and the bending failure was high stress, low cycle fatigue, which is different than most of the fatigue we've ever covered. What does that mean? It means that the fatigue wasn't there long and happened very quickly, as in it happened in about 10 seconds. Oh, that's horrifying. It was about 150 to 200 cycles that caused this. Normally when we're talking fatigue, we're talking thousands of cycles. Yep. Not here, boo-boo. No. This bolt Not was, here, boo-boo. This bolt was probably fine until this happened, and then it started fatiguing in 10 seconds. Yikes. Just with the rotation of the tail rotor. Big, enormous yikes. So this... Fatigue failure was produced by the tail rotor imbalance since the one blade, the white blade, had lost its anti-erosion strip and the vibration got worse until it started fatiguing the bolt. Investigators also safely assumed that rapid fatigue failure occurred on the lower attachment of the gearbox at those two locations as well, but was unable to confirm this due to saltwater corrosion. Great. Not much you can do about that. It's the ocean. Yeah. So... We know the sequence of events here, but that doesn't answer the bigger question. These helicopters are designed to take a lightning strike and not be brought down by it. So why did this happen? Right. And the big thing here is that the pilots had actually said, no, it was lightning. It was Mm -hmm. lightning that brought us down. And everybody was like, the helicopter is designed not to do that. It's certified not to fall out of the sky from lightning. But there was clear evidence. There were burn marks. There were scorch marks. There were arcing marks. And nobody believed them until they got the rotor blades. So to figure out what happened, investigators had to look at the rotor blades. Now, most of the forensic material science we have covered on this podcast has been about metal. It's really common in aviation and overall a very simple structure to decipher forensically. Composites? Not so much. Not so much. Not so much. To give a brief overview, since I haven't done it in ages, 
Composites are made by laying a cloth of either fiberglass or carbon fiber, whichever one you have opted to use, applying epoxy, and then alternating between the two until you are at your desired thickness, number of layers, what have you. The fiber cloth has an orientation to it, like any other cloth, and is stronger in one direction than the other, so changing the orientation of the cloth between layers changes the mechanical properties of the composite. Engineers, like myself, design these to fit the application desired, and you can tailor it to your needs. Having all the fibers in the direction of a tension load makes it stronger in tension. Yep. Having fibers at 90 degrees makes the composite flexible in bending. 45 degree fibers resist shear. These are just some examples, and I don't know what the exact layup of these blades was, but it would be safe to say that you want them a little flexible, and you want them very strong in tension. Right. Yes. Composites are becoming more and more common throughout aviation because they have a whole host of benefits. They're lighter and stronger by weight, they're stiff, they have a high fatigue strength, and they don't corrode as much, and they don't expand with heat. All of these are very beneficial for aviation. As such, the 787 and the A350 are mostly composite. And they do that as well because actually when the airplanes are pressurized, it allows them to be pressurized to more like five or 6,000 feet cabin altitude versus eight or 9,000 feet for the typical airliner. So it's a more comfortable experience for passengers, too. Yeah, it's the, stronger. Because the carbon fiber is a lot stronger under pressure. Under pressure. Do, 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 do. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, all that to say that doing forensic analysis on composite is a pain. Yeah. Because it's not an isotropic material. Oh, there's a word. Ooh, <laughs> fancy words. So an isotropic material, like a metal, has the same property in all directions. You go, like... Zero degrees, same properties, 10 degrees, 15 degrees, etc. It's all the same. You pull it, it's going to be the same strength in all directions. Not composite. Obviously, based on what I just said. A visual examination and standard microscope examination were not enough to diagnose what went wrong. X-rays were useless, so eventually a scanning electron microscope had to be used. This examination found that the damage to the white tail rotor blade was fundamentally different than the other blades as it had severe thermal damage by the attachment bolt reinforcements and the composite had delaminated, meaning that the layers of carbon fiber and fiberglass had peeled away from each other. Yikes. But again, these were certified to withstand lightning, so what went wrong? Right. Investigators had to determine how strong of lightning struck the helicopter since it's certified to handle a certain strength of lightning. 200 kiloamperes, to be exact, or kiloamps. Investigators simulated lightning strikes on rotor blades, which they had video of in the Mayday episode, and looked horrifying. It's quite dramatic, actually. Well, yeah, you're like hitting a huge electronic charge to a piece of blade. Yeah. Piece of Composite. They literally had to cover the whole thing so you don't actually see the blade get hit. But you see you a just, giant flash. You just see the big flash boom from underneath the cover it's under. So they did Fine. this with varying amperage until they were able to replicate the damage found on the accident blades. At first, they tried 12.7 kiloamps. First of all, oh my god. That's a lot. That's enough to kill somebody already, isn't it? I don't know. Probably. I'm sure it would be. They had some damage, which is concerning... As it is, yeah. Because it's rated for 200 kiloamps? Yeah, that's already enough. I'll get to that. Yeah. Eventually. But it was not nearly what the accident flight had experienced. Then they tested 190 kiloamps, and the titanium erosion shields debonded 90% of its length. Not all of it. 
Another series of tests with some different conditions replicated a lot of delamination and desponding at 188 kilo amps, and the erosion shield desponded 75% of its length. But none of this debonded the whole erosion shield. So let's ramp it up, shall we? They tested at 275 kilo amps. Oof. Oh my god. <laughs> which is above the certification limit, and the damage was more than previous tests, but still less than what the tail blade had encountered. So it was more than that? Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. How close were they to the lightning? That's not even the factor. We'll get was there. Was it how hot the lightning was? No, we'll get kind there. Kind of. Kind of. I'll get to it. Okay. It had experienced the most similar, as opposed to all the other tests, in terms of the erosion shield's quote-unquote explosive detachment. So it accomplished that, so it was closer. Now the entire erosion shield's gone. Or my favorite, rapid disassembly. I like explosive detachment. I was pretty pleased with that. But the anti-erosion shield detachment doesn't seem like it would be enough to cause the full accident. Right? Right. It's not that heavy. In theory. Investigators performed one of my favorites, a finite element analysis. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> or FEA, to determine if this was the case. For boundary conditions, which are required for FEA, as got drilled in my head a lot. Thanks, Dana. They assumed rigid attachments of the gearbox at its three mountings, one upper and two lower. Rigid attachments is a notable term. Given the time it took for the tail rotor failure of about three and a half minutes, this analysis found it would require an imbalance of 0.85 to 2.7 kilogram meters, meaning it would have had to lose at least the outboard area of the blade, both tip weight bolts, and the anti-erosion shield during the lightning strike, and none of the lightning simulations were able to cause this kind of damage. So investigators decided to try a spin test to see if the flight loading would cause further damage on the already weakened blade and have the outer airfoil and tip weight bolts separate due to centrifugal and aerodynamic loading. But that didn't work. Great. Sure, small sections of skin and core detached, and the damage to the leading edge widened, but no significant mass was shed. Okay, so uh, did they ever figure out what actually happened? Yes. Okay. I'm just checking. What the bleep happened? <laughs> I'm just like, Per the story. Ah! Per act one. Per act one. But the FEA and subsequent spin tests were based on a static scenario with rigid attachments. Oh. After consulting with an engineer with experience on dynamic structural loads as opposed to static... Investigators brought in the Sterling Dynamics Company, who developed a computer model that also accounted for dynamic behavior. What the heck does that mean? Yeah. That took me a second. I was like, I took dynamics. What does that mean? <laughs> I haven't been in school in a while, guys. Well, when you have an imbalance like this, and actually, Miranda probably knows more about this than you do. Probably. You create a cycling load based on the mass and stiffness of the assembly, and it has a natural frequency accordingly. If the forces that cause the cyclic loading are the same frequency or a multiple or overtone of the natural frequency, that makes sense. The forces would compound and get higher and higher. Yeah, multiply until uh, catastrophe. Yep. The normal cruise tail rotor rotation frequency is 1,295 RPM or 21.6 hertz. Remember that number. Four different configurations produce the following natural frequencies of the system under different circumstances. 20.8 hertz, 22.35 hertz, 
22.8 hertz and 23.35 hertz. All right around that uh, frequency there. Yep, getting close. So the forces were found using the model of if one anti-erosion shield were lost. The forces were six times the original finite element analysis values and increased if the assumed stiffness of the upper gearbox attachment were reduced, which it very well might have been. It was fatiguing, wasn't it? Yep. Therefore, one anti-erosion shield loss definitely caused this. Furthermore, they were able to measure the G-load caused and found that it was enough to cancel the combined voice FDR, which had happened, as I mentioned. Yeah. This CVFDR stopped working after the lightning strike because its G-switch, which is intended to detect impact, has a pretty low G setting of 6.4 Gs, which was hit by that vibration. Right. So this recorder, when it measures a certain number of Gs, will stop recording. So that's the reason they lost the flight data recorder in the CDRs, because of the G-switch. It it thought it had impacted something, when really it was just the vibration of the tail rotor. It was just the... (laughs) Of the tail rotor. Basically. I mean, yeah, I I would say that's... It should have a higher G setting, is more of what I'm getting at. Yep. So, I think we mentioned in Japan Flight 123, they hit 100 Gs? Yeah, they hit something insane. Ridiculous amount of Gs. I think that the impact rating should be more like 25 Gs before that G switch is caught, but whatever. Probably not a bad idea. That's just (laughs) me, right? Now, I mentioned before that the relatively low amperage of 12.7 kiloamps caused damage. These blades are certified for 200 kiloamps. Why did that damage it? Well, this tail rotor was said to have identical lightning protection features from a previous design, which is true. The lightning protection features were indeed identical, but the earlier tail rotor blades were made from glass-reinforced plastic, also known as fiberglass. And these new tail rotor blades had carbon fiber in them. Why is this important? Well, one downside to using carbon fiber is that it is an extremely conductive material and conducts electricity extremely well, unlike the previously used glass fibers that were total insulators. This had been brought to Eurocopter's attention in November of 1990, and they performed tests accordingly, but at a much less severe lightning setting than required for certification, because the system was considered to be a read-across from the previous tail rotors' designs, and the read-across method of validation doesn't care that the underlying material was different. That's just dumb. I feel, yeah, I feel like if you're going to change what you put inside the rotor, you should have to recertify it to its full potential. Yeah. Because then something like this happens and you yeah. have superconductive material and then lightning goes, oh, look! Boom. There you go. Yep. Thank you for putting that so succinctly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sum that up. Carbon fiber composite is about a thousand times more resistive than aluminum alloy, meaning it heats up like a thousand times more than aluminum alloy. And it goes boom. (laughs) Meaning it explodes. (laughs) It means it delaminates. Yeah. Because the epoxy between the layers can only handle so much heat. Which is what really gives the explosive effect, I guess. Yes. Is the fact that it just delaminates so quickly that it blows apart. Yep. As such, there need to be engineered current paths so that the discharges don't go through structural fibers and destroy the composite. 
This is done by providing a much less resistive material for it to go through. So the electricity is like, that doesn't look as hard to go through like the composite does. So I'm going to go there. This is done with a metal mesh, which is what's used today. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the 787 and the A350 just have a copper woven, mesh. basically, grid through the entire airplane. Yeah, a mesh over the entire airplane. So it's woven in with all of the carbon composite. Because that's basically how electricity works. It cho- Some of it still goes through the path of most resistance, but the vast majority of it goes through the path of least resistance. Metal is a lot less resistive than composite. Yeah. So this didn't have the mesh? Nope. So that's why it went boom? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, just double checking. <laughs> so it delaminated around that titanium strip. The yeah. anti-erosion strip. So that just um, explosively detached. And then the, because one blade now has that much less weight, the entire thing is now vibrating. They're, yeah. Because it's just, it, that's it's not imbalanced. how it works. That's yeah. what it do. And so as it vibrated more and more, and that particular vibration got heightened because of the natural frequency of the system, it started breaking the bolts, and so the whole tail rotor just came off. Well, and eventually this all happened about the same time that he put force on the yaw pedals. Which probably caused that overload. Oh. Uh... Yeah, and the overload from the changing pitch of the blades eventually snapped. That's not great. Yeah, he had no way of knowing, though. So, no, uh... I mean... So, on that note, the question of pilot error was brought up during the course of the investigation. That was a great segue, Miranda. You're welcome. (laughs) Should the crew have flown into this? That's what I was going to ask. I'm like, um, seems a little irresponsible, although Nick said something about they didn't see anything on their radar. The weather data they had before takeoff showed nothing that should have stopped them from taking off. So they took off. Boom. (laughs) You remember that 56 Bravo was also operating and preparing to operate into the same storms. I mean, this was nothing they hadn't seen before. This was also very much standard for their operating around the area. I mean, it would have to be up in that part of the world in this yep. time. You and know. they have pretty strict schedules they got to keep because they've got really important people. they got to do really important jobs out yep. there. Which, like, I understand, but also, like, be safe. Yeah. Yeah. So once in the air, you might question, did anything show up on their weather radar? That might have been of uh, concern. No. Nope. No. Did they get the like the little black spot thing, like the nope. The, nope. the blind spot? No, they actually could see all the weather ahead of them. But, but nothing was... showed anything more than green. a little bit of green and yellow. So it was recorded on the CVR that they commented that there was a large cloud build up north, but they still had a clear path until the weather changed very rapidly, and there was nothing they could do. But what they flew into was kind of unique all on its own. You might recall the super high amperage during the lightning simulations. 275 kiloamps sound about right? Well, there's another way of measuring the strength of lightning called action integral, which is defined by the Journal of Lightning Research. That is a thing. It is the measure of the ability of lightning current to generate heat, and it's measured in amp squared seconds. There's a thing. That. Like None what? of us ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what? As I was saying, it is measured in amp squared seconds. Ugh. This tail rotor blade was certified to 2 million amp squared seconds. That's a lot. I mean, At I, least it sounds I like don't a lot. really know the significance of amp squared seconds. 2 so. million of anything sounds like a lot to me. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but if I put it in like a kilo amp squared seconds, I know. it's like 2. I know. So... 
The lightning simulations prove that this strike was more like 4.2 to 6 million amp squared seconds, up to three times what it was certified for in terms of the action integral. But how is this possible? Well, the certification says it was only intended to provide protection assurance against 98% of lightning strikes likely to be encountered in service. And the AAIB was not happy with that. Okay. And digging deeper, they found that the standard only includes negative cloud-to-ground or cloud-to-sea lightning and excludes the often more powerful positive cloud-to-ground or cloud-to-sea discharges, which, granted, are only 10% of lightning, but still increases the probability of the more powerful discharges to 3.5% of the time. EA Technology, who is monitoring lightning over the North Sea, found that the helicopter had indeed been struck by a positive discharge. And EA Tech also found that some 80% of the lightning over the North Sea were these positive discharges. So they were in the part of the world where this happened. Yeah. And Japanese lightning researchers found that such discharges could be up to 300 kiloamps, with action integrals of 10 million amp squared seconds, five times what these blades were rated for. Yikes. So that sucks. Now, from what I could find in the report, they didn't really address the why of the super powerful lightning in the North Sea, but the Mayday episode did. It did. This area of water between the UK and Norway is where the warmer airs of the Atlantic meet the frigid airs of the Arctic, forming rapid storms, and small ice crystals hit updrafts and get sent to the top of the cumulonimbus clouds where they accumulate more moisture and freeze until they're so heavy that they fall as hail. As this is happening, the falling hail is encountering the upward-moving ice crystals and create friction and static electricity, building the potential for lightning. You know what else causes friction in the air? Helicopter blades. Yup. According to the episode, the one lightning strike in the storm that day, the single lightning strike in the storm that day, was caused by the helicopter itself. They encounter the only lightning strike. In the entire storm. Because of them. Because of themselves. The rotor blades were literally spinning so fast they were creating friction on the friction, creating an even higher electric charge. What are the chances (laughs) that they're the ones who cause the lightning, they get hit, and the rotor blades delaminate? Like, Apparently enough. With the amount, like, the positive charge lightning that rarely happens anywhere else. You have to... But 80% of the time here. You have to imagine that because they got the only lightning strike... They discharged that entire storm. Yeah. They literally I'm were surprised they didn't just get shot out of the air then. They were literally responsible for removing the entire electric charge from that storm. Dude. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? That's like surviving you like I bet bragging we- rights. Like, <laughs> I caused this entire storm to have one lightning. They probably already went through the worst of the storm and then the storm probably That's started dying off That's why the second helicopter didn't get hit yeah. with lightning. Yeah. Because they already took the charge. Calling all meteorologists. <laughs> ultimately, the investigators complimented the skill and professionalism of the crew in the ditching and how ultimately successful it was. They even consider it perhaps understandable that they left the emergency beacon behind, given that they needed to get into the Hello Raft, which is what it's called, before they rolled over and sank in the helicopter due to the considerable swells. Yeah, I mean... So the one mistake they made, they're like, yeah, I get it. They're like, ah, whatever. <laughs> you all survived in an in incredible circumstance. Really, this was... Pretty unbelievable. I mean, considering everything, it could have been so much worse. Yeah. I'm I'm literally surprised that the lightning didn't just cause them to fall out of the sky if it was that strong. I mean, it 
pretty much did. I they mean, just did a good job. It just took three and a half minutes. It yeah, just, just it was it was a kind it, of structured fall. Yeah. Yes. Not there just was, a fall. Break it a break. Break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back. And we're back. On a different day. Yeah, we actually decided to record this the next day. <laughs> to be fair, it was... A r- we had some issues yesterday. It already took us two hours to record that first half. <laughs> the dog and cats were, like, fighting each other. I was like, listen, I need to go home and go to bed. Yeah, by the time we finished that, it was already after 9 o'clock, and we were like, ugh, uh, need to just go do home. it tomorrow. So here we are, tomorrow. Tomorrow. This- oh, by the way, since we last recorded, I have learned some things, and I hate to disappoint all of you. But Dr. Chris Yakaki will not be returning for the Challenger episode. Yeah. Lame. He sent us a message today. Said that he is just too busy and can't do the episode. If you guys want to keep up to date on what he's doing, you can look up Imprezio. Their logo has a football helmet in it. You can keep up to date on all the projects he's working on if you're really that interested. Also, if you really want him to do the podcast again so we can do that, just... Flood his everything. He is Googleable. He is Googleable. Just flood it. Flood it all. Flood every bit of it. Until he's like, okay, I'll take a day off. Yeah. But we'll just do the Challenger episode without him because we've already pushed it twice. Well, I mean, do we want to do it without him if we're pushing them to message him? <laughs> we can do a different episode with him. Okay. I really want to do the Challenger I get okay. it. And I don't want to have to keep waiting for and him. he really wanted to do the Challenger, but now he's too busy. Well, now he can just listen to it. Okay. So, sorry to disappoint y'all, but go spam him if you care. And now back to your regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> findings. <laughs> the findings. So I narrowed some of these down. There were originally 25 of them, but I took a handful out. They found that the weather conditions were within the permitted operating envelope of the helicopter. I actually left this one in because this is kind of important because the weather wasn't actually technically a factor. They were allowed to operate in the given weather. The pilots were not at fault for opting to continue in this weather. Right. Exactly. I thought that was kind of weird, but if they're used to operating in the SEP weather... Technically, the helicopter was supposed to be legal to fly in that weather, but turned out that the rotor Yeah, they were certified incorrectly. (sighs) So there. They found that the crew exhibited a high degree of skill in carrying out a successful ditching into the rough sea conditions. Good job, guys. Good job. They found that there were minor errors of procedure made by the crew during the evacuation into the heliraft and within the heliraft, but none of these errors affected the safety or rescue of personnel in this accident. I.e. the beacon. I.e. the rope that was already cut. And shoving 18 people into a 14-man. Yeah, things like that. But ultimately, everybody survived, so good on them. That's true. (laughs) They found that the crews of the fast rescue craft exhibited a high degree of skill in the transfer of personnel. So they were very um, well-adapted. Skilled? 
Yes. In their abilities to help rescue these people. Turns out. You did what you were trying to do. Job. Yay! Good job. Good job. Good job at your job. They found that the survival of all the passengers reflected well on all the individuals and on their training and pre-flight briefing. So it worked. I wonder, hypothetically, what survivability would have looked like if they were not required to do that underwater training. Yeah, I don't know. But having had that training and wearing the suits and... Because like, they had to do a full simulation training, like in a pool with yeah, a sinking everything. helicopter. Like these, this, all the passengers were very, 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 very well equipped to handle what happened to them, which really helped everybody survive. I mean, it proved itself worthy of that training. Again, if if you read the safety information card, you too, you too can also be prepped for <laughs> yeah. an emergency. Yeah, it turns out. <laughs> it turns out. All right. They found that the rescue coordination, while successful in this case, highlighted the potential problem regarding who is primarily responsible for the coordination of a rescue operation concerning an air accident in a maritime environment. Like, who's in charge? Who actually is supposed to be in charge of that? There was somebody in charge kind of at all given times, but it wasn't somebody who was specifically... That is their job. I feel like to be in this happens with almost every rescue that we talk about. Kind like, of. Who's yeah. in charge here? Yeah. In most cases. Some cases it's great. In some cases not so much. But like in the U.S., in most cases, if, if an aircraft goes down in a maritime situation, out in the Gulf, out in the Atlantic, out in the Pacific, whatever it be, in a Great Lake, the Coast, Coast Guard. Guard. The Coast Guard's in charge. And the Coast Guard will have a lead in the rescue coordination. They found that one main rotor blade and one tail rotor blade had suffered high-energy lightning strike damage. However, the main rotor continued to operate satisfactorily. So that wasn't the problem. It was definitely no, the, it was tail the tail rotor. rotor. Yep. Which Exploding. turns out, can't fly a helicopter. Yeah, no, that doesn't go Not very well. Not stably. Is that the Stab- stabilized? There we go. <laughs> so now we, we start getting into a little bit of the longer and uh, more in-depth findings Technical. here. Yes. They found that the white tail rotor blade was sufficiently damaged by the lightning strike to induce severe vibration, which later caused the complete detachment of the tail rotor, associated gearbox, and pitch servo assembly due to cyclical or cyclic overstressing of the gearbox attachments within some three and a half minutes of the strike. I I don't know if I like the way that was worded. I don't know if I do either, but because it wasn't cyclical overstressing, it was Not just cyclic se. loading. Yes, that's probably more what it would be. Is this translate? No, it wouldn't be nope, translated. it was not. Hmm. This was just whoever wrote it wrote the wrong word, I would say. No me gusta. Where, wait, this happened in the UK, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was done by the AAIB. Yeah, well, maybe they have like a different, you know, know, way to say things than we do, you know, because that happens. That or whoever wrote it probably just wasn't their expertise. I don't know. I, I, mm, mm. I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But also, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll leave it alone. Okay. On to the next one. I'll keep my thoughts to myself. <laughs> they found that the detached mass of the damaged tail rotor gearbox and pitch servo was fortuitously restrained from complete separation from the tail boom pylon by two of the four stainless steel hydraulic pipes connected to the pitch servo. 
which had held it suspended alongside the right side of the pylon, allowing retention of effective helicopter longitudinal pitch control until the ditching had been successfully completed. I forgot to mention, this was mentioned in the Mayday episode, and I don't know if it was in the report, but if, for whatever reason, the tail rotor had separated completely and was not held on by the two hydraulic pipes... Good chance they wouldn't have made it. They would not have been able to ditch upright. Well, yeah. Because they would have been front heavy. No, yeah. They would have been too front heavy and they would have possibly rolled forward. So it was really lucky that the tail rotor stayed on just long enough for them to hit the water. Yeah. They found that simulated lightning tests conducted on this type of tail rotor blade produced similar root damage to that observed on the white blade. With various forms of corresponding damage, including desponding detachment of the leading edge anti-erosion shields and gross airfoil damage. However, detachment of the tip weight bolts did not occur in these tests, or during later spin rig testing of each damaged blade. And it was determined that those didn't need to come off to cause the vibration. Yeah. So, it didn't matter. Yeah. They found that the tail rotor gearbox detached due to the effects of tail rotor imbalance and associated dynamic response of the gearbox slash pylon boom assembly, which caused unlocking slash loosening and fatigue failure of the gearbox upper attachment bolt and associated cyclic overstressing, there it is again, of the two lower mounting lugs within some three and a half minutes of the lightning strike. So, like, the tail rotor just, like, stopped working. It came off. It came off. And they were, I think, at one point able to determine that the lower attachment, at least one lower attachment point failed before the upper attachment point, but they couldn't really go too in-depth into how it failed, again, because of the saltwater corrosion. But through the finite element analysis, or FEA, I think they did ultimately determine that one of the lower ones failed first. Yeah. So, there we go. They found that the dynamic stress analysis used indicated that the white tail rotor blade lost mass equivalent to the detachment of its leading edge anti-erosion shield to produce the required out-of-balance forces to overstress the gearbox attachment due to cyclic loading. See, that one has cyclic loading in it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I give up. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. It's too late. It's already published. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't have a three-hour conversation on the wording of two of the you findings. You know, they may have. <laughs> okay, a slight deviation finding before we go back. They found that the forces generated in the tail boom would also have been sufficient to trigger the G-switch in the combined voice and flight data recorder electrical power supply as occurred. So, so they stopped working. It stopped working because... They it, thought they hit something. It, it Even had though they G's. did not. Right. 6.4 G on a G switch is too low. Yeah, it just seems too low. To yeah, me. I mean, do do it like even just 10 Gs. Well, and even if... So, for example, say you put this same system into the Galloping Ghost when it went up its parabola. Uh-huh. It would have stopped working before it hit the top. Yeah. It would have stopped working in any one of its given turns in the race. Yeah. They so, were doing, like, six, seven, eight G turns. So it's just one of those, like, maybe a This wasn't more? a great idea. Yeah. Overall. Just I, I, I'd i say at least 10, if not more like 20, 25 Gs. Yeah. Yes. 
They found that the failure of the locking wire attached to the upper attachment bolt head and and consequent loosening of this bolt as a result of the cyclic forces induced by the tail rotor out-of-balance condition increased the loading on the two lower mounting lugs both by load transfer and by altering the natural frequency of the tail boom slash pylon assembly and highlighted the need for strengthened locking provisions for this bolt. I didn't talk about this at all. But they needed to have stronger locks. Yeah, that's just fair enough. I feel like whenever we talk about stuff that fails, they find a bunch of other stuff that could have, you know, helped it not fail. Yep. I, I, the, there's like a branch offs of causes. I went with the straight and narrow path, and there were yep. little paths here and there that I was like, eh, we'll cover it later. Okay, now for the interesting and the important one. They found that this design of carbon composite tail rotor blade was not subjected to lightning testing during its certification in 1981 for the AS332 Mark I helicopter, since it was considered merely a development of an earlier fiberglass blade fitted to the SA350 Ecuriole, which had been satisfactorily certificated to the lightning <laughs> test criteria of TSS8. You know what this freaking sounds like? Yeah. Having engines that they're like, they'll work from the 707 to the 747. You know, the whole thing we talked about with, uh, what was it? The Can, engine pylons. The pylons. Oh, yeah, for um, American Airlines 191. No, it was for LL. Oh, LL. Yeah, yeah, LL. yeah, yeah. No, that doesn't freaking work. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like, maybe you should certify it and make sure when you're using a new material... Or when you're using it on a different helicopter, that it it works <laughs> in general. So I talked about the action integral of a lightning strike earlier, which is its capacity to cause heat. The action integral of the accident lightning strike was three times what was certified for that tail rotor blade. Uh, let's just put a material in the middle there that combusts really easily. Okay. That's a great idea. They found that this accident demonstrated the potential for critical damage to be sustained by helicopters equipped with carbon composite tail rotor blades as a result of high-energy lightning strikes. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, in a nutshell. Ta-da. <laughs> just a few more. They found that while North Sea flight trails of the quote, storm scope weather mapping system are continuing on one AS-332 Lima helicopter. In November 1996, the Offshore Helicopter Services Safety Group declined to continue sponsorship of the alternate program to develop onboard E-field sensor equipment for North Sea helicopters due to the associated costs of the required research. So they wanted to upgrade the weather radar, but they didn't want to pay for it anymore. And from what I kind of assume from that e-field sounds like electrical field yeah so, so it's it more like the lightning sensing lightning detecting yeah i feel like in that particular region it might be um beneficial important yes they found that the helicopter buoyancy system operated effectively to maintain the aircraft in a stable condition despite the prevailing high sea state so that was good and finally they found that the heli raft was punctured by contact with a sharp projection on one probably the right jettisoned cabin door which floated due to inherent buoyancy inherent buoyancy it wasn't supposed to have yeah it actually was supposed to sink so there's that little detail there's that that's the findings so the investigation identified the following causal factors plural yes one of the carbon composite tail rotor blades suffered a lightning strike which exceeded its lightning protection provisions causing significant damage and mass loss the dynamic response of the gearbox pylon boom assembly to the tail rotor system imbalance induced rapid cyclic overstressing 
of the gearbox attachments, which was accelerated by the early failure of the upper mounting bolt locking wire, allowing consequent loosening and fatigue failure of this bolt. Complete loss of the yaw control system and momentary pitch down as a result of detachment of the tail rotor, gearbox, and pitch servo assembly. And lastly, the lightning strike protection provisions on this design of carbon composite tail rotor blade was were inadequate due to it having been developed from an earlier fiberglass blade, which had been certificated to lightning test criteria, which have since become obsolete. So there you go. Ta-da. That's the many things involved with the probable cause. Causes. Causes. As per usual, it's like never only one cause. Yeah. So there are eight recommendations, the eighth one being the longest, but we'll get there. They recommended... That the CAA should ensure that the North Sea Helicopter Operating Companies include in their very effective recurrent training for crews discussion and were possible, hands-on, practice of the procedures necessary to accomplish a successful evacuation from a floating helicopter following a ditching or alighting on the sea. Basically, just kind of keep it up. (laughs) You did good. You did good. Good job. Now just do that more. Do that more. They recommend to the manufacturer of the AS332 Lima Super Puma helicopter should review the failure modes of the cabin door upper guide roller mounting arms, which can occur during door jettison in rough sea conditions, and take action to prevent such mounting arm failures, which can puncture heli rafts when they subsequently come into contact with floating doors. So the doors weren't supposed to have sharp edges. No. But the top edge broke when it was yeeted off of the helicopter. The yeet. <laughs> For lack of a better term, I guess. I mean, jettison is yeet. Yes. To put it in layman's terms. Yep. They recommended to the CAA that the CAA should call for a survey of jettisonable doors of composite construction fitted to North Sea public transport helicopters to determine if they are initially buoyant on jettison, and if so, to inspect such doors for projections likely to puncture floating helirafts. They really taking, care more about that than I thought they would. Yep. Taking into account damage likely to occur to door mountings during jettison in rough sea conditions. Yeah, they cared apparently a lot about that. Is, the raft didn't sink with 18 people in it. It never actually sank. Which, like, good on them for having good rest. Yeah, and they actually recovered the raft, so... So I, he- I heard, like, the first phrase of what you said, and then I heard jettisonable, and I he- just, in my head, thought yeetable. Yeetable. <laughs> Yeet! The yeetable. Yeet! They recommended that in order to prevent the premature cessation of electrical power supply to helicopter-combined voice and flight data recorders caused by abnormal excessive vibration effects on associated G-switches, it is recommended to the CAA that, quote, one, require operators to render inoperative CVFDR G-switches as an interim measure, and two, take action to identify a more suitable method of stopping such flight recorders during crash impact. So they basically told them to turn off the G-switch so that the recorder was always running and didn't prematurely turn off. Yep. And to find a better method of telling the CV- the data recorder of yes. both voice and flight data. Of the voice and data variety? Yeah. Yes. That find a better way of conveying to that device that, oh, you hit something. Yeah. You should stop recording now. Yeah. 
They recommend that in order to provide helicopter commanders with the necessary real-time information to enable them to avoid flight into areas of actual thunderstorms or lightning activity in public transport helicopters which have composite rotor blades, the CAA and affected operators should jointly agree the filament of lightning discharge mapping systems to such aircraft. The authority should also inform other airworthiness authorities of the action taken in response to this recommendation. This one's hard. Basically, they want them to have some form of lightning detection and electrical charge detection, things like that. I think the, the easier thing to do would just to make the blades not explode. Yeah, just make sure it's actually supposed to be uh, Which, certified. Yeah, so that obviously happened. Spoiler alert. Yeah. I mean, you haven't heard of this happening since, so. Yeah. Right. They were like, ah, oh, we were stupid. Okay. We go okay. fix it. <laughs> Carbon's a conductor. Yep. Duh. Duh. As a matter of fact, it's almost a superconductor. Yeah. And it's rotating in the air with a bunch of other friction. That's a great idea. Let's just do that. Yeah. They recommended to the manufacturer of the AS332 Lima Super Puma helicopter should introduce improved strength locking arrangements for the mounting bolts of the tail rotor gearbox assembly such that unlocking and loosening of these bolts does not occur under conditions of excessive tail rotor vibration resultant from tail rotor damage. Pretty straightforward. Change the bolt assembly. I assume they followed through with that one because that's also not too complicated. Yeah, just put a stronger lock on it. Like Yippers. Yeah, it's not that hard. Two more! They recommended to the manufacturer of the Alpha Sierra 332 Lima Super Puma helicopter should review the dynamic frequency responses of the tail boom slash pylon assembly in relation to tail rotor rotational frequencies with a view towards assessing and practicability of modifying the tail boom slash pylon assembly to reduce associated structural dynamic coupling and related fatigue damage which may arise from in-flight tail rotor blade damage slash loss of mass. They need to stop with the run-on sentences. I'm honestly really surprised that this was not considered during design. Yes, I will agree. Just a thought. Yes. However, if you think about almost everything we've covered before, they like... If they don't have to think about it in design, they don't. And then they figure out it's a problem later. It's kind of the common theme in aviation is like everything <laughs> I is... I hate... I know. It's kind of the common theme in aviation that everything is designed like... to do its job extremely well. And anything deviating from that, it is designed to do extremely not well. I took an entire year's worth of classes on just this concept. Yeah. And it's... then to just have it completely ignored during the design process, I'm like... What? Why? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. It's just like... It, it, also, so many crashes would have been preventable if they just did this. Okay, now for the last recommendation, the long one. Ready? I'm, I'm buckled. Okay. Metaphorically. <laughs> they recommended to the CAA, in conjunction with the appropriate industry committees, should review aircraft lightning certification requirements and the advisory nature of AC20-53A, to introduce the following more stringent requirements for rotary wing aircraft with composite rotor blades. 1. Increase the specified Zone 1 Alpha Action Integral to a level compatible with the highest energy positive polarity lightning discharges likely to be encountered in service. So increase the strength such that it can actually handle the kinds of lightning that exist. Yep. 2. Replace the existing 98% probability assurance with 100% probability target. Three, addition of specified arc attachment points to be used in lightning 
certification tests on rotor blades to include leading edge tip, tip weight bolts of fused, trailing edge tip, trailing edge up to 0.5 meters inboard of tip. Four, specified use of representative blade root attachment assemblies during all lightning tests to simulate related current flow slash thermal effects on root structure. In addition, the CAN appropriate committee should review lightning certification requirements with regard to any corresponding or other improvements which may be deemed necessary for fixed-wing aircraft with significant composite material structure elements, which is very, very relevant. Very relevant, since this is definitely the way the industry is going. Again, since the Boeing 787 and Airbus 350. Yes, and then you start getting down into the GA world where Cirrus starts to put a little bit of carbon composite in their airplanes, and so on and so on. It's very relevant, and part of what they were talking about is having the metal attachments on the rotor blade while during lightning testing because they found that that interface was part of the problem. Yeah. And when it was certificated, it sounds like, again, I didn't read too far into this, but it sounds like they didn't have everything attached during certification. Yeah. So you can't accurately predict how that interface would work during a lightning strike. Right. So there. So there. So that's the whole of that. That was, I don't even know. <laughs> Bristow Helicopters Flight 56 Charlie. Correct. Okay. Or BHL 56 Charlie. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We have an a, a question to answer. Okay, so this is kind of an unofficial question. We've gotten it we we discussed potentially talking about this, but then I had a coworker specifically ask me about it, and I acknowledged that this is going to come out in two weeks from when we're recording, and it isn't particularly timely, but it's timely to when we're recording. Afghanistan. Oh, boy. So you have all have probably seen pictures floating around news outlets and the, the internet as a whole showing C-17s massively packed with people. No, they are not overloaded. No. They're cargo flights. Giant cargo flights. And fun they, fact, they can hold a lot more than those people on board. Yeah. There, there's actually, so I know there's a lot of discussion floating around about like, oh, how do they coordinate a such thing? And oh, how can they skirt the rules? Well, this is not the first time by any means that a humanitarian mission has had to skirt around the, some of those rules. Also, since it is a humanitarian mission, they kind of have the right that's it's a weird yeah. kind of unspoken rule. Yeah, they're getting people to safety. Right. Like that's why So I mean, obviously like there's rules normally in place about seating. Yeah, passenger safety, things they, like that. These C seventeens don't have passenger seating. They're just sitting right. on the floor. But what the heck else are you gonna do? Right. And um, and they operate in such a way that's going to prevent it from being a dangerous situation. But also I mean, when you're talking about an airplane loaded with 800 people, you think, oh, man, the weight and balance on that's got to be crazy. Yeah, but it's only 800 people. It's not 800 people and their baggage. They didn't bring yeah. much with them. And on top of that, that airplane, the C-17, because it has a very high center of gravity and is very much designed to carry many, many tons of heavy military equipment, i.e. Humvees, which weigh many thousands of people worth of weight. Yeah, we've <laughs> we've talked about this before on... National yeah. Air? Nation yeah. Air? National Air? Flight 102. Yes. So the reality is is this is well within the means of the airplane. And it's just more that they have to fly it for safety factor of having so many 
people, people. on board. But other than that, I mean, the weight and balance isn't that big of a deal. Plus, the other big factor is that they fly the airplanes with a relatively low amount of fuel. Their goal is only really to cross the border. Yeah. Get them out of their current situation. Once they're across the border and to a safe place to land, that's pretty much what they do. They drop them there, and then from there, they're, they just activated the... Uh, civil. Yeah, the civil relief, or civil... What is it? I can't even think of it. Civil Reserve Air Fleet. Which is a fancy way of saying that uh, commercial carriers, so like United, Delta, American Airlines, they are now taking their planes and going to Afghanistan to get people out. It's not just military aircraft anymore. and, And not just Afghanistan, but the surrounding areas where a lot of these refugees were dropped. Where from there, they have to continue on to different locations, so... Different countries are now going and picking them up from the air areas that they were dropped at. Um, and the U.S. has sent, yeah, they've activated the the re- Civil Reserve Fleet to do such a thing. So, yeah, there's, I believe there's six airlines involved in such a thing. But they are very much on the way there. And this is nothing abnormal. This is, they actually have procedures in place for all of these things. And it's happened before. Yes. And this isn't the first time in history this has ever happened. No. And it's crazy to see those pictures of the C-17, but actually if you look it up in history, there is a 747 that carried the highest number of passengers ever carried. And it was also a, a humanitarian mission where they had to carry over 1,000 people out. Oof. And actually, the number varies because they have no idea how many people were actually on board the airplane. They say it's anywhere between 850 and possibly 1,600 people. God. They don't know for sure how many people were actually carried on board that 747 that day. They just put them on the plane and went. Okay, so I do want to list some of the airlines that are involved in the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. The long-range international carriers are ABX Air, Air Transport International, American Airlines, Amerijet International, Atlas Air, Delta Airlines, FedEx Express, Hawaiian Airlines, Kalita Air, National Airlines, Omni Air International, Polar Air Cargo, Southern Air, United Airlines, UPS Airlines, and Western Global Airlines. So I can tell you for a fact which airlines actually are have been activated in the reserve fleet. They are American, Delta, United, Omni Air, Atlas, and Hawaiian. Those are the airlines that have been activated. So they are providing airplanes to go pick up people. Which, like, that's good. Like, also, it gives I feel the Euro- like we're doing good for it, once. It, it also gives the European counterparts the chance to see a Hawaiian Airlines plane. Because yeah. otherwise... <laughs> Unless they go to Hawaii from they there. Never there. Yeah. They never go there, but a Hawaiian Airlines is going to inevitably stop somewhere in Europe along the way. Which is pretty cool. It is kind of cool, actually. Um, the other question that we haven't officially gotten, but has been raised amongst all the aviation things that I see floating across my social media is, is there a safe way to uh, hold on to a plane? As no. it's flying? No. As a stowaway? No. Uh, no. There's zero chance. Every so. person that I can think of that, like, I guess you could maybe go in a, in a if you can find your way into a baggage compartment mm, without no. getting seen, like, good luck. But, like, the wheel weld, the wings, like, there's no... So place. the reason this was raised is there is security footage of people falling from a f- taking off C-17. Which and, obviously is horrible. And falling to their deaths. 
Yes, it's terrible. At least two people died that way. And I think that they had fallen from the wheel wells. And there's a couple of reasons why trying to hide in a wheel well is a bad idea. First of all, you can get crushed. Yeah, yeah. They don't, the wheels do come up. They like, don't they design don't. that any, <laughs> at, in any way, shape, or form to contain people. Yeah. There's no extra room in there. No. Like You're going to get crushed by the wheel. Tight tolerances. You're probably going to lose your grip as the landing gear is retracting. And just as the airplane is dealing with so many forces. I mean... The speed, the wind, and then the turbulence of just taking off. So if for an, whatever reason... You do end up safely in the wheel well with the gear stowed. That's not pressurized. And it's also not temperature controlled. So you're going to, one, freeze to death and or, one, be hypoxic and die from suffocation, depending on how long you're in the air and how high you are. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you could potentially fall out when the gear comes down. So, Which, so... Do not attempt this. No. And actually, there's been... Throughout history in aviation, many, 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 many thousands of times that people have tried to stow away in the landing gear of airliners from all over the world. It doesn't work. And it never goes well. And this isn't, this is talking purely in a sense of literally this happens all the time. And actually, most of the time, you probably don't hear about it. There was one very famous incident that did spark a lot of conversations about it. Pan Airlines? No, this was into uh, London. So they were landing in London, I believe from somewhere, I don't remember where, I think it was inbound from Africa, but there was a stowaway on the airplane in the landing gear, yeah. and he had, of course, passed away because it wasn't pressurized or temperature controlled. Gear went down on final, and the body fell next to a sunbather in their backyard. I mean, literally, the body fell within, like, a foot of this sunbather. That's horrifying. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, most people, like you guys know, because you listen to this podcast, but most of the general public would not understand that one, wheel wells are not pressurized, and two, they're not temperature, temperature controlled. controlled. So if you don't die from hypoxia, you could also die by freezing to death, because it's freezing cold that high. So just don't do it. And the answer is no. There's nowhere for you to go that's like safe to stow away. Yeah. That's why, so I'm going to get off on a weird side tangent, but the the show Manifest, there's a person who's a stowaway. <laughs> I was like, that would never happen. Nope. That no. would never, ever, ever happen because they wouldn't even be allowed on the plane. The Manifest would not allow them on the plane. Like, there's no way. So, anyway. So, there's our little info session since it has been asked. I do understand things have probably changed by the time you hear this. Yes. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all our patrons. patrons. If you haven't checked out the Patreon, do it. We have hundreds of hours of extra content on there now uh, because we have post episodes and blooper reels and my episodes and all that. So go check that out on the website and or on Patreon itself and check out the merch site. There's some new stuff up on there. And then go ahead and make sure you come back. We like when you come back. <laughs> <laughs> just come listen again. Yeah. And, like, give us feedback. Like, email us just to, just to like, be like, yo, like, great podcast. Like, we love those emails. We it's love great. those emails so much. Thanks. And uh, feel free to go listen to other podcasts. We don't care. <laughs> <laughs> we encourage you to do so. Cause we listen to other podcasts. Yeah. So, please do so. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you all next week. 
Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.